I don't know about you, but I love a, um, a good sequel. If there even is a such thing, usually the sequels are not nearly as good as the original, but I like a sequel, a part two, and you could consider this morning's text and sermon a sequel to last week. We ended our time pretty uh, abruptly last week in our text because Paul was confronting his attackers, his accusers. He was giving a defense before them of his conversion and, uh, and his call to share Jesus with, with Jews and Gentiles. And, uh, and we've seen Paul already on trial. Um, we'll see, actually, this is the second of, of, of five trials that he will endure in the book of Acts. And you could say um, that, that today's trial is uh, his trial before the clergy, before the religious leaders. We'll see another trial later on before um, the, the, the corrupt, those that would be out to destroy him. Um, but there's encouragement in this passage for us, church, because if, there, if you're anything like me, we can know the right things about Jesus. We can believe the right things about Jesus and know the truth of the gospel. And yet it's an entirely different thing to be bold, to have the strength and courage to actually stand and speak it, especially before an unbelieving audience or an unfriendly audience or an unreceptive audience, whether that's one person or a room full of people. It's a, it's a completely different thing to know the truth of Christ and to, to speak it. And Paul here is, a, is an example for us this morning. We'll start in verse 22, but I need to remind you of what's going on uh, earlier, just prior to verse 22. In the passage from last week, uh, Paul was recounting his conversion. Uh, how he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was one of the most trained in his day as a Pharisee. He was headed to Damascus to round up Christians and to destroy them, either by throwing them in prison or by having them killed, so as to, to, to uh, completely extinguish the, the name of Jesus from this place, to, to, to rid the, uh, the, this area of the, the way, as they called it, of Christians following after a Messiah from Nazareth. He wanted to completely do away with them. That's how much he believed he was pursuing God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he would squash this, this cult that was rising up. And he's pointing out to them that in the midst of that, on the midst of that journey to Damascus, he met Jesus, and Jesus, Jesus saved him. He called him to be a follower of, of, of himself, a follower of Jesus, and then he gave him a mission to go and preach the good news to Jews and Gentiles. And to that point, as Paul's recounting his story, he's talking about how he was a, you know, a Pharisee among Pharisees, how he was zealous for God, how he was so zealous that he wanted to, to rid the, the place of the name of Jesus. They're probably nodding their heads. They're probably like trekking along with the story. Well, okay, this is pretty good. Yeah, this is, this is good. We like this. And then in verse 21, if you look back up at verse 21 with me, it says, and he said to, uh, and, and he's speaking of Jesus here, and he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And it's like instantly when Paul said that word, Gentile, it was like he lit a stick of dynamite. And that's where we ended last week. I told you we'd see their responses this morning and what happened. And so if you have your Bible still open, look at verse 22. Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts here, he picks up on it, and this is where I'm getting this idea from, that immediately when he says that word, that's because in verse 22 it says, Up to this word they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the, to, into the air, 
And so in an instant, this riot has resumed. This mob has started their shouting again. And to say that this is a tough crowd is a massive understatement. This audience literally wanted to kill Paul. They wanted to rid him from the face of the earth. They wanted to completely annihilate him. And so they're, 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 they're so mad here that they're, they're chunking their clothes on the ground and they're throwing dirt into the air. I mean, it just sort of reminds you of like a toddler in a temper tantrum. It's not going their way. And so they're just flinging their clothes on the ground and chunking dirt in the air. They're wrecking anything they can get their hands on because they're not getting their way. And it's, it's infuriating them. Thankfully, Paul's rescued from the mob, if you continue in verse 24. It says, The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Now, in the rest of our time this morning, we're going to see how Paul responds to more accusation, more trials, uh, and, and his responses in those. But I have to be honest, this isn't an easy passage to teach. This isn't an easy passage for us to understand because Paul's actions are not, they're not explained to us. They're simply reported to us by Luke. We have no commentary from Luke, at least, uh, no appraisal of his actions, the motivations behind them, what they were accomplishing. We're just simply given, here's what happened. So Bible teachers... Writers of commentaries, scholars, they go in all sorts of directions with this text as to uh, whether or not Paul's answers were filled with integrity. Whether or not Paul's um, giving a, a faithful gospel witness here. Whether he's being straight up with his accusers or whether there's, uh, whether there's some neck saving going on here. Whether he's taking every opportunity to share Jesus or he's somehow skirting a little bit the truth so as to spare his own life. But what we can say for sure is that Paul's clearly intelligent. He's a savvy guy. He's a bold guy. He's courageous here. He's, he's passionate when he stood in front of these folks and he's sharing his testimony with them. When he stands in front of the commander and in a moment when he stands in front of the religious council, he's, he's bold. He's intelligent. He's savvy. But another thing we can say for sure this morning, without a doubt, is that Paul is, is, is a flawed man. He has weaknesses. And I think so often we go through accounts like this and we can somehow elevate these folks, even the apostles, to this place where they're not, where they're, 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 they're sort of sinless. But that's not the case. These guys had flaws too. They all had a need for God's grace, the Lord's mercy and grace as they walk through these, these, these times. And, and we all share in that need. And so this morning, that's the takeaway. That, that, that in Paul, we see a flawed man, but a bold man. A man who has weaknesses and sins, but a man who's courageous in the midst of of affliction and persecution. And in that, there's an encouragement for us. We're in the same boat. We we need God's grace for boldness, for courage, for strength in the midst of our weaknesses. And so I've come up with what I thought maybe would be a handy way to remember the three kind of scenes in this text. Paul's accusers and his responses to his accusers. But before I give them to you, I'm going to have to just give you a disclaimer, a warning that you're going to have to deal with my dad jokes this morning. If you're going to be willing to, to use this memory device that I came up with. I was looking at this text and trying to think, like, was there any way that we can tie these things together and see a common theme to help us remember this, this part of Acts, right? Where Paul's accused and his answers to his accusers. And it hit me. I realized Paul's basically just spending a day in the office. Here we go. Point number one. Paul in the paper shredder. Number two, Paul in the hole punch. Emphasis on punch. If you've read the text, you know what I'm talking about. And then number three, Paul in the scissors. 
So let's see what I mean. Number one, we see Paul in the paper shredder. So the, the Romans here, just to set the context for you, the, the, the tribune, Lysias, uh, the centurions that are uh, about to carry out this, this beating, they have no beef with Paul. They have no problem with Paul other than the fact that there's this riot in Jerusalem and he seems to be at the center of it. Even after his speech and his explanation, they still have no clue why he's the center of this, 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 uh, this, this riot. They're, they're clueless. They have no, no, no thing to bring against him, no accusation, no charge, except for that he's in the middle of this thing. And they can't seem to understand why the Jews hate him so badly that, that, that they're trying to kill him, that they're beating him. They just want it to stop because they don't like the riot. Verse 25 says, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now you may wonder, Matt, why in the world did you say uh, this first scene is, is Paul with the paper shredder? And it's actually quite grotesque. And so uh, the, the, the background maybe would shed a little bit of light on it, but it's, it's gruesome. The, the, the idea here that, that, that Lysias has no beef with Paul, the Romans have no beef with Paul, um, except for that, that this riot is going on, yet they're still willing to go to these links that I'm about to describe to get him to, to talk, maybe tell some secret truth behind why they hate him so badly. It says in the text that he was stretched out for the whips. Now that's a clue for us, that's a hint for us about, uh, about what's about to take place. It's a very specific form of torture that, that they're about to carry out. Lysias is about to employ, the, uh, employ the, the, the Jack Bauer method of examination. He's about to strap him to a, a pole where his skin is stretched tight, and he's about to be flogged. But this is a different, he's already been flogged in Acts. We've seen that already. This is different from the flogging that he's already received. Um, New Testament scholar John Polhill says this, This was a particularly cruel manner of of scourging that consisted of a beating across the raw flesh with leather thongs that were uh, inserted, that had uh, rough pieces of bone or metal inserted into the leather straps. The thongs were then set on a wooden uh, handle and was a much more severe manner of beating than the rods that Paul and Silas underwent in Philippi. Then he says this, It was not uncommon that after the victim's flesh was shredded, they would die as a result of the, the injuries from the flagellum, those leather straps. They were about to shred Paul's flesh. And here's the thing. For the Romans, they, again, they had no problem with, with Paul other than this, this, they can't get to the bottom of this thing. And so this would solve it. Either one, he would talk, or two, he would die. Either way, in a few hours, this riot's about to come to an end. But just before the beating begins, Paul asks the centurion a question that stops him in, a, in his tracks. He says, is it, is it legal what you're about to do? Is it legal for you to, to scourge a man who's a Roman citizen and, and, is, and is uncondemned? And of course, Paul already knew the answer to this question. It's absolutely illegal what you're about to do. I'm a Roman citizen and you're about to carry out an unjust punishment and, and a severe one at that. And the centurion, knowing the danger of breaking this law, immediately stops what he's doing. And he brings this dilemma before his commanding officer, and now Lysias is completely confused. Verse 26, as we continue in the text, it says, When the centurion heard this, he went before the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. 
So here's the scene. Lysias finds out that Paul is actually a Roman citizen. He's not just a phony Roman citizen that purchased his citizenship in some back alley somewhere uh, with some bribe, as Lysias had. He's a citizen by birth. He was born into this. And since I've already committed this terrible analogy with office equipment, this is the part when you're shredding paper with the paper shredder where it just malfunctions and it keeps going and you're trying to get it unstuck and it's shredding the thing that it's not supposed to be shredding so you plug it out of the, unplug it from the wall and it just keeps going. The whole thing is falling apart and malfunctioning and that's what Lysias has in his hands right now. This whole thing is falling apart in his hands, right? They just want to keep the peace because if they don't, then Rome comes in. He knows what's at stake. And not only can he not keep the peace, he can't get to the bottom of this and find out why there is no peace. And on top of that, he's about to kill a man who's a Roman citizen without cause. It's all falling apart for Lysias. And he's no closer to finding out the truth about who Paul is. Adding to that frustration, verse 29, there's now fear. You're frustrated. On top of that, now you're, you're fearful. Because he knew that this was an illegal t- attack and that his neck would be on the line. And so he opts for another approach. That leads to our second point. Before we go to that next point, is there anything that we can learn from this? Like, what, what, what can we take from this text and this, uh, this part of Acts and, and apply to our lives? And I think, I think it's pretty simple, but it's, it's profound for us. In Romans chapter 13, Paul, the same Paul that is here about to sub, uh, submit to this, the same Paul in Romans chapter 13 urges Christians to submit to their governing authorities. The same guy who is unjustly beaten almost to death and is about to be scourged, which probably would have resulted in his death, instructs us to submit to governing authorities. But Paul also expected government authorities to exercise its duties with justice. That's why he stops him. He expects that when he explains I'm a Roman citizen, something's going to happen. The government is supposed to protect Roman citizens. And so I, th- I think there's this, there's this truth for us that Paul challenged those in, in, in power, in authority, to wield their authority honorably. And I think the takeaway for us this morning is in, in a nation where we're free citizens, where we live in a nation that we live in, we should be thankful for that nation and we should submit to our authorities. We should pray for those that are in authority over us. We should also expect justice. We should expect our authorities to do rightly. We live in a land of laws. Those laws protect us, and as long as they do, we should appeal to them. But if these laws prevent us from worshiping Jesus, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, it's better for us to obey God than man. And so our supreme authority is Christ. We submit first to Christ and then to those that are governing us. Submit to their leadership and appeal to them to to do it with justice and to do it rightly. Well, that was Paul in the paper shredder. Second encounter, second response that we see from Paul is Paul in the hole punch, continuing verse 30. It says, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was beaten or being accused by the Jews, he, that, that's Lysias, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought, brought Paul down and set him before them. So Lysias' hands are tied at this point. As far as beating the truth out of Paul, that's not going to happen. And so maybe he can bring him before a smaller group, not all of the Jews that were the mob that were were beating him, but the the smaller group of religious leaders, and he could get the truth to come out of him that way. Maybe they could question him in a way without all the hostility and somehow get the truth out of him. And that would be a logical assumption, right? I mean, these these are religious men. These are trained men. These are supposedly mature men. Surely they can behave themselves well enough to get to the bottom of this. 
Acts chapter 23, verse 1. It says, and looking intently at the council. Now, before we move any further, there's a couple things to note here. When it says Paul was looking intently at them, the idea there in the, in the, in the Greek is that he's looking at them straight in the face, eye to eye. None of this staring at the floor in humility, none of this preaching to the back wall. He's looking at them eye to eye, right in the face. Also, when it says the council, it's important for us to note who that is. That group would have been made up of the high priestly, um, uh, royal uh, leaders among the, among the Jews, the aristocracy among the, the, the Jewish leaders, the ruling elders, which were mainly Sadducees. And the, uh, there, there would have been some Pharisees, but they would have been mostly scribes. So scribes, elders that are Sadducees and Pharisees. So these are the religious elite of the day. And he's staring them in the face. And this first point deals with his character, that his actions are upright. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul's saying, I'm not conscious of anything that I've done wrong. In fact, I'm justified by this, that it's the Lord God who has watched me live who judges me? He, he would testify to this that I'm innocent. Now there's a word of application here for us, church, just in passing. That as we defend the Christian faith in a lost world, in a dark world, character matters. Your integrity matters. As Paul is able to say here, I, there's nothing in my conscience that, that, would, that, would, that would have brought me to this place that I'm deserving of this. Our lives, church family, should back up the truth that we proclaim. The truth coming from our mouths should be backed up by the truth that our lives demonstrate. We pursue a blameless life. We pursue a life of holiness, one of, one of integrity, a character that's upright. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we must repent, be quick to run to Christ, that we maintain a good conscience and glorify God before the people. We, we desire to, to, to see one to Christ. Yet, though that's true for Paul... No sooner did Paul get these words out of his mouth than did the high priest Ananias command those near Paul to punch him in the mouth. You see it in verse 3. It says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Out of nowhere, they just sucker punched Paul right in the face. And we read this, we wonder, well, why in the world would he do this? Why, why would Ananias ask his buddies to treat Paul this way? I think there's a couple things. First, Ananias thought Paul was a troublemaker. You've you got to realize the context here. He, he believes Paul to be, to be uh, someone who's stirring up trouble, who's, who's, who's teaching truth that would divide Israel. And, and on top of that, now he's a liar. And he wouldn't admit it. He wouldn't admit any guilt. And on top of that, on top of Paul saying he did nothing wrong, he's actually bringing God into this thing, saying that God would say that he did nothing wrong. And, and here's the thing. He's not, Paul's not saying that he's sinless. We see Paul admit sin and guilt in his epistles. It's not saying that he's sinless. It's just that he lived above reproach. That in this context, there's nothing he'd done to provoke such a riot. He was innocent as far as that goes. And this claim to Ananias was absurd. And he loses his temper. The second thing, though, the second reason I think Ananias would command for this punch here to take place, Ananias was a wicked man. Uh, history tells us, historical record has account uh, for the, the type of greed that, that characterized Ananias. That he had a quick temper. That he, that he often re, uh, resorted to, to violence. 
that he had pro-Roman sentiments. And so he hears Paul say this, has him popped right in the mouth, and that tends to provoke some sort of reaction, right? Even from those that are innocent, you get punched in the mouth, you usually do or say something. And Paul does. Look at verse 3. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you, uh, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, we can certainly sympathize with Paul here. His mouth is probably still bleeding from the blow he just took. And he throws a verbal blow back to the high priest, calling him a straight-up hypocrite. This idea of being whitewashed, we've heard before in the, in the text of Scripture. It's an insult. He's basically saying to the high priest, outwardly, you're whitewashed. You look clean and neat and, and orderly, and you look like you have everything placed t- together in your life, and you look nice. But that, that's, that's, the, that's the outside. And the inside, you're corrupt. You're, you're bankrupt. You're flimsy. There's nothing, nothing good about you. You're, you're, you're wicked on the inside. It's all for show. You're just a big hypocrite is what he's saying. And Paul's statement was more prophetic than he knew. History will also tell us that this same Ananias would lead a group of Jewish freedom fighters that would eventually turn on him and assassinate him um, in no more than 10 years after this point. But let's continue. Verse 4 says, Those that stood by said, uh, now the, the room is speaking to Paul, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So here's the thing. Paul spoke truth. Paul's cause was just. He was in the right. And Paul was being treated unjustly when he was innocent. He was being accused of something he hadn't done. And yet, even though all of that is true, he seems to regret speaking to the high priest in the way that he did. If you you read verse 5, it seems that he backs off of his original rebuke. It seems that he regrets it in some way. Or at least backs off of the, the firmness with which he said it. And so what can we learn here, church family? I think, I think we learn that Paul acted hastily. Even if, even if what he said is true, even if what he said was, was right, it seems like he might have said it hastily and, and maybe even in the flesh a little bit, even though it was not an untrue statement. It seems to contradict what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you read 1 Corinthians 4 verse 12, it says, When reviled, we bless When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. If you go to Luke chapter 22 or John chapter 18, you see that Jesus himself, though Jesus condemned hypocrisy in his life and in his teaching among the religious leaders, he condemned hypocrisy. In Luke 22 and in John 18, when Jesus gets to his trial, he responds to his accusers with restraint. He doesn't do it there. And so I think the point here is, 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 yes, we speak out and we speak toward injustice. We condemn injustice. We speak for the innocent. We speak up when we know truth and we know truth, church. We speak clearly against the sinful culture and the things that God speaks out against in his word. But here's, I think, what we would learn from here. We do it with respect. We do it with restraint. We do it as we're led by the Holy Spirit. And we consider the tone with which we're speaking. The heart, the motivations of our heart when we speak against things that God speaks against, right? And so it's not just enough. It's this, 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 this truth and love idea. Our condemnations, when we condemn the things that God condemns, is it being led by the Holy Spirit 
Is it being filled with, with truth and love? Or is it simply a knee-jerk reaction because it's something that we're, that we're ticked off about? Right? I think Paul gives us a lesson here that, that even if the things we're saying are true, we have to consider the tone, the manner, the way in which we're, we're speaking them. And verse 5 shows us that Paul seemed to back off that original tone somewhat. But verse 5 also presents us with another fascinating question in this text. Here it is. Look at verse 5, in particular the end of verse 5. Paul cites Exodus chapter 22. So you see the quotes there. That's Exodus 22, verse 28. And the quote is this, You shall not speak vile or evil of a ruler of your people. So what do we make of this statement? Why is it that that it's quoted here? Why is Paul bringing this statement up before these folks and and seeming to back off of the the tone of of the rebuke that he just made toward the high priest? There's a couple views here. I'll give them both to you. One's the... The sincerity view. And this view is that, that Paul, he, he was genuinely sincere when he quotes this scripture. And when he backs off of his original statement, he was sincere. Because he didn't know that, that Ananias was the high priest. Right? He made a mistake. Right? And maybe, maybe Ananias didn't have his high priestly robe, robe on. And so Paul didn't recognize he was the high priest. And so when he says you know, that he, he quotes the scripture, he, he genuinely means it. Maybe he didn't, maybe he'd been away from Jerusalem for so long, he didn't know Ananias. Maybe the room, there was so much commotion going on in the room that he didn't realize that's who said it, right? For whatever reason, the, the sincerity view says that, that he was genuinely sincere when he says what he says and quotes Exodus 22. He was sincere there. The other view is the sarcastic view. I'm, I'm getting these from Tony Marita too, by the way, and he probably got them from a, a commentary as well. But the sarcastic view says this, that Paul knew exactly who he was talking to. And that, and that he was using irony and sarcasm as if to say, brothers in this room, there is nothing priestly about this man. And he's quoting this as sort of a, a sarcastic jab at him. I know exactly who I'm talking to, and he's not fitting that bill. He's not living up to the one in Exodus 22 that we should be submitting to. This was John Calvin's view as well. John Calvin uh, says that, that, that Paul offers this initial rebuke and then backs it up by making an even stronger statement about Ananias' character. But to see that, you would have to see that he's using sarcasm in doing so. I'm not going to settle this for us. Uh, I'm not going to give you a definitive answer or even where I lean on this. But here's what we do know for sure. We know that Paul's track record shows that he attempted to be respectful wherever he ministered, right? Whether it was Mars Hill among pagan philosophers he desired to be respectful and win them to Christ. Whether it was, you know, in some of these Gentile lands that he went and started churches and was even, uh, uh, there was uh, attempts to kill him, he still attempted to minister with, with grace and kindness and respect to those cultures and those places, proclaiming the truth to them, not backing up from the truth, but doing it in a way that would be respectful. But here's the other thing. We also know that Paul's a sinful human. And so it's not beyond the possibilities that he simply lost his cool here. He lost his temper and he, and he maybe overstepped. He maybe went too far and he quotes scripture recognizing his error. Either way, either way, the takeaway for us, church, is that Paul's in need of God's grace. In that moment, he stood before attackers. He stood before those accusing him when he was innocent. He needed God's grace to be cold, bold, courageous, and present the truth. Either way, he needed God's grace. He'd been beaten by a Jewish mob. He'd almost been flogged to death by the Romans. He'd been punched in the mouth by the religious leaders. He needed God's grace more than ever. And so do we. So do you and so do I. If we're going to stand and be the ambassadors that Christ has called us to be on behalf of him in this lost culture and to this world, we need God's grace. And we're going to make mistakes along the way. Third scene in the text this morning. 
Paul and the scissors. Now, Paul ain't no dummy, right? My daddy used to say that. Paul ain't no dummy. He knows his audience. And the reason I titled this part of the sermon Paul and the Scissors is that because it's because that's exactly what it seems like Paul does next. He takes scissors and he divides the room. He cuts them in half. He, he, he divides and conquers. He takes his attackers and he puts them against themselves. And just like he had a pair of scissors, he cuts the room in half. Watch in verse 6. It says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. And with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead, that I'm on trial. There it is. That's, that's the bomb that, that Paul drops on this room. With hope to the resurrection of the dead. That's the reason I'm on trial. And it says this, verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And now, here's Luke's explanation. Luke is the writer of Acts. He's going to give us the explanation. For those of us in the room, that wouldn't have, I mean, why, why would this divide the room? I don't understand. How does he say this? And immediately they started fighting amongst themselves. Luke's going to give us the commentary. Verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, it's the Romans, Jews are fighting amongst themselves, the Romans uh, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, Paul was trying to, I mean, the question for us as we read this, was Paul trying to divert attention away from himself in this move? Maybe. Maybe. But was the primary purpose of this, the bringing up the resurrection, an attempt to spare himself or to save his neck, and I think absolutely not. I don't think the resurrection here, the, the speech of the resurrection here is just a diversion. I don't think it's just his scapegoat. It's like his, his way of wiggling out of the scenario. I think in bringing up the resurrection here, he's actually genuinely, truthfully answering Lysias' original question. The reason Lysias brought him before this group in the first place. Why do these people hate you? Why do they want you killed? And by bringing up the resurrection, he's actually pointing out the real issue behind all of these trials. It's a theological dispute. He believes Jesus was resurrected. And this whole room full of people, or at least the, the, the Jew, the unbelieving Jews, they didn't. They didn't believe in, in, in Jesus and being the Son of God, dying on the cross on behalf of sins and being raised from the dead. And so, yes, it played to Paul's defense. It was the reason his neck was spared here, but it was also completely accurate. His belief in Christ had made him intolerable to, to these Jews. And the effect was this theological debate brought about a quick and a sharp division. Paul's statement here cut the room into two. The Pharisees actually, the irony of this, the Pharisees actually end up defending Paul here. He's done nothing wrong. Maybe an angel spoke to him. Maybe a spirit spoke to him. And all this debate turned into violence, and then Lysias once again goes in and removes Paul before they tear him into two, the text says. He's delivered back to the barracks. So the lesson to be learned here, the, the takeaway for us, church family, if the resurrection remains the central truth, the central theme, the core of the Christian faith, and it does, then we too must keep proclaiming it. 
We must keep heralding the news of an empty tomb, expecting that there will be various responses to it. In Paul's case, it caused him to live. In our cases, perhaps, in our brothers and sisters around the world right now, it may be the very reason that they die. Proclaiming the resurrection, proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God and He died on behalf of sin and He rose again to conquer the grave. That most excellent news could be the reason that some of our brothers and sisters today face death. For Paul, it was the reason he was spared. Either way, we proclaim it the same. We have Paul back in the barracks. His body there, especially his mouth, probably still stinging from the punch that he just received. We have one verse left in our text this morning. And I want to read it. Miss, Miss Sharon uh, saved it for me. And I want to read it for us because it's the way I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. If you thought we were getting to the end of our text, we're done. There's one verse left. And I believe in that one verse, there's so much encouragement for us believers. Because in that one verse, the Lord shows up and talks with Paul. Even in the midst of the, the, the hurt, the physical hurt and, and, and pain that he's in in that moment, the Lord shows up and ministers to him. And I believe he would to our heart this morning as well. Here it is, verse 11. 23, verse 11. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And in that one short verse, I want to give us four takeaways, four observations here that when we're faithful, when we're obedient to, to claiming the name of Christ, no matter what that brings, there's four Incredibly encouraging truths in this one verse, in verse 11, that I believe the Lord would use to strengthen our hearts, to encourage us, to spur us on to faithfulness. Here's the first one. The Lord knows you. The Lord knows you. Jesus knew Paul's situation. Jesus knew Paul's physical, spiritual, emotional condition. He, he knew all of that, and he knows yours too. Even if you feel that he doesn't, even if you feel that no one understands how you feel, Jesus does. You're never outside of his gaze. He never has his eye off of you. Verse, uh, John, chapter four, verse uh, John chapter 10, verse 14 says that Jesus knows his sheep by name and by need. He knows you this morning. He knows right where you are. John, uh, Charles Spurgeon in the 18th century, 18th century pastor, he was commenting on this passage of Scripture, and he says this, One is reminded of the Quaker who came to see John Bunyan in prison. Now, if you don't know who John Bunyan is, John Bunyan was a 17th century pastor who was imprisoned for his convictions. And he was in prison, and, and, and Spurgeon reminds us of this Quaker that came to see him. And the Quaker goes and, and finds him. He says, Friend, the Lord sent me to you, and I've been seeking you in half of the prisons in England. No, verily, said John Bunyan, that cannot be. For if the Lord had sent you to me, you would have come here right away and at once. For he knows right where I've been this whole time. And the idea is this. He knows. He's not lost you. You've not fallen from his sight. And how encouraging that, that, that truth should be to us. That no matter where you find yourself this morning, his eyes are on you. He knows you. Second truth is this. Not only does he know you, the Lord is with you. This is not the first time that we've seen this happen in Acts. If you go back to Acts 18, verses 9 and 10, you'll see that Jesus has comforted Paul with his presence before. That in Acts 18, Paul felt alone and scared and depressed and attacked, defeated, and he knew Jesus was with him. And he was comforted by that. 
He writes in 2 Timothy, a letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 17, and says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me that through the message, uh, that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth, Paul says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom to be with him in glory forever and ever. Amen. So, believer, be encouraged by this this morning. He has promised to never leave you. He's with you. If you are his, if you are born again, he is with you no matter where you go. And that promise is sure. He's given That promise is so sure that he's given his spirit to live inside of you. That's how present he is with you. So he knows you. He's with you. But this is the third, third observation in verse 11 that we see. The Lord is for you. We see this in two ways in verse 11. The first way is this. The Lord exhorted him. Jesus is with him in, in his cell there. And he says that, that he told him to have courage. That's an exhortation. Have courage. He's exhorting him. Jesus tells him to endure this courageously. Whatever this is bringing into your life, Paul, it's not by accident or chance. Endure it courageously. I know you. I'm with you. This is my will for you, and nothing's going to stand against my will for you. So he exhorts him. The second thing, second way that we know that the Lord is for Paul here, is the Lord not only gives him an exhortation, he gives him a commendation. Paul Paul is commended by Jesus here. Jesus commends Paul. He says, you've testified about me in Jerusalem. And what an encouragement, right? Can you imagine that there's coming a day when we're going to stand before our king? And our prayer on this planet should be that we would stand before him and hear these words, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Paul gets a glimpse of that here in this cell. Can you imagine the encouragement that brings to him to know that the Lord is for him and he knows that the Lord is for him because his Savior, the one he's living for, the one he lives to worship, says to him, you did it, Paul. You did it faithfully. You told them about me. You lived faithfully before these folks who were attacking you. I have to imagine that's what Paul's remembering When he writes in Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who's against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a great question, church. What a great question with an even better answer. No one. If God is for you, there's no one that can be against you that will have any effect or or impact or will matter. The fourth truth is this, that should bring us encouragement as we see Jesus here in in the barracks with Paul. The Lord knows you, the Lord is with you, the Lord is for you, but lastly, the Lord isn't finished with you. Now, we don't know Paul's headspace at this time, where his mind was at. He doesn't speak to it. That's what I was saying about this text. We, we know the details of this occasion, but we don't, we don't know what Paul's thinking here. He doesn't tell us, at least, but you can imagine... You can imagine as he's, as he's here, he, he's already been told, right? We know prophecy has been given to him on numerous accounts that he's going to face affliction and suffering in Jerusalem. And now in this barracks for the second time, maybe he's thinking, this is it. This is it. This is, this is where it ends for me. This is the end of my race. This is it. Maybe I'll never get to see Rome that I've longed to see. Maybe I'll never get to see any of those brothers and sisters in Christ that, that, I've, that I've met on this missionary journey, these two missionary journeys that I've been on. I'll never get to see those. This is the end of the line for me. This is where it all ends. Glory to Jesus. And then verse 11, he, we see this, this testify from, from, from Jesus. He says, you must testify also in Rome. In other words, Paul, I'm not finished with you yet. Can you imagine the encouragement that's brought to his heart? You must testify of me as you've done here in Jerusalem. You must do the same in Rome. 
And I'm going to make sure that you get there to Rome because this is my will for you. And so here's the thing. Future ministry, the prospect of future ministry, gave great encouragement to Paul, even in the midst of this most in, in, incredibly difficult in time and season of his life. Jesus had stood for Paul at the cross, and here he stands with Paul in the barracks. And he says, Paul, you will go to Rome, and Paul, you will testify my name there in, in Rome as well, and my will won't be thwarted. This is how you know you'll see another day, Paul. How this should be encouragement for us, church family. That if you're here in this room right now, hearing the sound of my voice, and you have air in your lungs and a heartbeat in your chest, Jesus is not finished with you. You are on this planet because his plan for you is not finished. It's not done. You're here because he's got a reason for you to be here. What encouragement that should bring to us. Piper, John Piper is often credited with this statement, but it goes back further than Piper, at least to uh, Henry Martin in the 18th century. And, And the quote has been changed and said in a few different ways, but the idea is basically this. God's servants are immortal until their work is done. You're immortal until your work here is done. No servant of God dies a premature death. If you're here, it's because he's not finished with you. There's encouragement in that for us, church. And I pray these words here to Jesus in the midst of this, this barracks and in this time of great need would be an encouragement to you. No matter what season of life you're in, no matter where you're at, maybe you're in the midst of a great trial. And, no, and you feel like no one understands or can relate to how you feel in this moment, overwhelmed by the darkness that surrounds you, let the presence of Christ bring you joy and encouragement this morning. I'll end with this illustration. Ancient historians uh, record that horse traders brought uh, this beautiful black horse into the court of, of Philip, Alexander the Great's father. And the horse was incredibly beautiful. It stood out among all of the other horses that the trader had brought and made available to the royal family. It was an incredible animal. But the horse was vicious. Wouldn't let anyone near it. It would kick at anyone that came near. would plunge at anybody that came near. And the horse was so wild and so dangerous that the, king, uh, the king's horsemen were about to make this trader leave and reject this horse. Even though it was incredibly beautiful, reject it and tell him to, to get on his way. But Alexander, the, the prince at this time, was fascinated by it. He's fascinated by this animal, and he, and he asked permission to ride it. And Alexander told everyone that was there that day that this horse was simply frightened by his own shadow. And so he, Alexander took this horse and slowly turned the animal's head toward the sun. And then he leapt on its back, and he galloped back and forth before his father as if nothing were wrong. I read that story, and I'm unsure, I'm unsure if it's any truth to it. It may be the, the completely fiction as a part of history. But we're often like that horse, afraid of everything, panicked by anything, fear throughout the day, overwhelming physical oppression and fear in our lives, anxiety over what, what are small things but feel like mountainous things to us, and we're just completely frozen by worry, anxiety, fear. And it's only when we turn our heads to the... S-O-N, the Son. And we fix our gaze on Jesus and know of his presence with us, know that he's for us, know that he's not finished with us, that we can truly live before our Father in perfect obedience and fulfillment of the call that he's given us and in obedience to the command that he's given us. Here's the thing. If you're here today and you've never given yourself to the Son, to Jesus Christ, the call is this, that you would come and lay down your life before him and repent of your sins and say, Jesus, I realize you died on my behalf. 
that your death on the cross was for me and for my sin, give your life to the Son today. He died on your behalf. And then for those of us that, that we, do, we do know him, we, we know what it's like to walk with him, but we're just going through, through difficulty, going through a season that's exhausting. Know this and be encouraged by it this morning. He knows you. He's with you. He's for you. And he isn't finished with you. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. He's redeemed you. You're his. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you this morning that it is is truth. And that it will not pass away. And that the thing that it's doing in our hearts this morning as your children, the way that your spirit is convincing us of the truth of this word is something supernatural that can't be snatched away. Spirit, we pray that you would preserve it in our hearts, that we would believe this truth. We would understand the presence of Christ in our lives as believers. And that would change our perspective on everything. God, I pray if there's one here that's never submitted to the King, that's never repented of their sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, I pray today would be that day. God, all across this room, I pray that we would live live obediently to King Jesus, that we would respond in this moment to King Jesus. God, produce fruit in each and every heart. We give you this time and pray that you would be honored in our worship as we respond to your word. You'd be pleased with your children, Jesus. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand, we're going to respond to the word today. You do business with the Lord. If you need to go before the Lord right where you're at and pray, ask for him to produce in you the thing that we know he can through the power of his, his spirit and his word. If you need to go to another believer today, even in this room, say, hey, can we go somewhere and pray together? I, I'm just struggling through some stuff, and I, I would love just to be able to talk for a second. Take this opportunity and do that. We're going to give us some announcements in a, in a minute, but you can miss that stuff. We'll tell you about that stuff later. You go do business with the Lord. Pray with someone if you need. I'll be available if you, if you want to walk through something, pray through something. If I, can, if I can share with you how to become a follower of Jesus, I'd love nothing more than to do that right now. But you be, be honest and open before the Lord. He knows your heart anyways. You do business with the Lord as we respond to his word.